uncomfortable in the past, maybe someone immediately springs to your mind. And I guess our answers would be very different and they would reflect our interests and the attributes that we prize the most or seek the most. Intellectual genius, outstanding beauty, physical prowess, personal charisma, amazing achievement, or the best combination of all of those things. And we'd say, yeah, that's the person I'd really like to meet and get to know. Who's the person you'd least like to meet? Maybe someone who's committed an appalling crime someone responsible for some act of genocide or maybe someone that you've met in the past and you certainly don't want to meet again maybe someone who did something to you or maybe it's someone you don't want to meet because of something you did to them and you'd be very embarrassed if you bumped into them in the street and again maybe a particular person springs to mind. A far more important question. One of the most important questions for any human being. What about meeting God? Does the prospect of meeting God fall into the most like to meet or least like to meet category? In our society's search for supernatural encounters, and anything that goes under the name of spirituality, many people would unhesitatingly say, yes, I'd like to meet with God. Far fewer would shrink from a possible encounter with God. However, if this book is to be believed, as among other things, an accurate record of God's self-disclosure to people, a record of how people in the past met with God, then I would suggest to you that, at very best, we should have mixed feelings about the prospect of meeting with God. On the one hand, it would caution us not to rush in literally where angels fear to tread. But on the other hand, it would urge us to seek that relationship with God for which we were made and in which alone we can find true fulfilment and satisfaction and every true genuine encounter with God is a kind of mixture of both of those elements and this is clearly seen this morning as we come to our series People in Prayer and we're looking today at Moses meeting with the Lord now it really will help this morning because we're going to be dotting around a bit and you're going to have to think hard if you need to sleep just do it quietly and don't disturb other people but it's quite important to try and listen if you're here this morning Uh, turn with me please to Exodus 33 There are Bibles in the pews, just get hold of one if you can't see one. If they're all used up, just lean over. There are other places where they're available. And you need to turn to page 92 and then to 94. This is the story of Moses meeting with God. In fact, he had a place, it's called a tent of meeting. Verse 7, Exodus 33. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. 
Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance of his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not, been, you've not let me know whom you'll send with me. You've said, I know you by name. You've found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand, until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand. You will see my back, but my face must not be seen. And then over the page in chapter 34, verse 29, page 94. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, that's the Ten Commandments, and this is the second occasion, of course, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. This is God's word and we need his help to understand it clearly. Now, if you were here last week, we looked at the story of a man called Jacob under the title, Wrestling with the Lord. And the focus was on a crisis encounter with God. Maybe last week, I know because some of you emailed me, I spoke to some of you after the service, that for some of you it was a very important moment, maybe more important than you realize, when God met with you in a new and special way. You may be restored to a new relationship with Him. But I want to say this week that the Lord's desire is not that you stumble, as it were, from crisis to crisis in your relationship with Him. But rather that you meet with God regularly. In fact, the Bible, the Hebrew image, and using Greek as well, is that you walk with God, which means that you have a regular encounter with God. And Moses, our subject today, had a crisis encounter with God. Like Jacob, he didn't wrestle with God. He met God in the backside of the desert, and God met with him in a burning bush that burned and was not consumed. 
But now we read that Moses had an ongoing relationship with the Lord. He met regularly with God. And it's important for us, wonderful though these experiences are, when God meets with us in a dramatic way and puts us back on course, as it were, He puts us back on course to bring us back into a relationship with Him so that we walk with Him day by day, that we meet with Him regularly. And I simply want to say, as we look at this passage, and there are many things we could say about it that we don't have time to speak about, but I just want to focus on two vital elements of any meeting with the Lord that we see in this account of Moses. Two vital elements of any meeting with the Lord. Now, the first I would describe as this. The first thing you need is a healthy fear when you're coming into the presence of the Lord. Some 15 years ago, the Christian author Philip Yancey wrote a very interesting book called Disappointment with God. Sold hundreds of thousands of copies. Uh, the subtitle, which you can't read on the screen very clearly, I don't think, is Three Questions No One Asks Aloud. And the three questions are, is God unfair? Is God silent? Is God hidden? And in answer to the third question, is God hidden? Yancey poses the question, which I'm sure we've all asked from time to time, is why doesn't God just visibly reveal himself and answer the skeptics once and for all? He says that kind of encounter, the sort of no-doubt encounter, is what we all hunger for. But then, and I encourage you to read the book for yourself, Yancey reminds himself and us that this did happen once with very surprising results. And what he writes is about what we've just read about, the story of Moses. Let me read what he writes. What we hunger for happened once. For a time, God did show up in person. And the man spoke with him face to face, as he might speak with a friend. They met together, God and Moses, in a tent pitched just outside the Israelite camp. The rendezvous was no secret. Whenever Moses trudged over to the tent to talk with God, the whole camp turned out to watch. A pillar of cloud, God's visible presence, blocked the entrance tent. No one except Moses knew what transpired inside. No one wanted to know. The Israelites learned to keep their distance. Speak to us yourself and we'll listen, they said to Moses, but do not have God speak to us or we'll die. After each meeting, Moses would emerge glowing like a space alien and the people turned their faces away until he covered himself with a veil. And he says this, there were few, if any, atheists in those days. No Israelites wrote plays about waiting for a God who never arrived. They could see clear evidence of God outside the tent of meeting or in the thick storm clouds hovering over Mount Sinai. A skeptic need only to hike over to the trembling mountain and reach out a hand and touch it and his doubts would vanish one second before he did. You see, fear being afraid of something so that you hesitate or are cautious in how you proceed is often, if not always, a healthy thing. Approaching a lion, it is a very healthy thing. Approaching a holy God, it is absolutely essential. Again, in his book, Yancey relates the story of how the great scientist Isaac Newton one day stared at the image of the sun reflected in a mirror. 
until the brightness burned into his retina. The result was that he suffered temporary blindness for three days and he had to hide behind closed shutters. And still, he said, the bright spot would not fade from his vision. If he'd stayed any longer, he could have been permanently blinded. Now, there is nothing wrong with the sun. It provides light and warmth and health for our planet. And without it, we would perish. But you treat it with a healthy respect, with a healthy fear. How much more the God who made the sun, who ultimately sustains life on earth and the whole universe. Significantly, in the verses we read at the beginning of the service, in trying to use human language to describe the indescribable, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God, God is the one who lives, notice the words, in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. Now the Bible has a word to describe that kind of brilliance of God, that otherness, that, well, you just can't describe it any other way. The Bible word is the word glory. It's been much maligned today, but in the Bible it, it refers to everything that God is in his utter brilliance. And if a person were, as it were, to see God's glory full on, without any protection, it would mean instant destruction. So in request of Moses, in answer to Moses' request in the bit we read, when he says, show me your glory, the Lord says, all right, but again, using human language, I'll cover you with my hands so that you don't see my face, you only see my glory, as it were, as a glimpse passing by. You see, human beings need protection from the glory of God. Uh, Moses needed it. Similarly, as you read the Old Testament account, and if you read the book of Exodus, when God appeared on Mount Sinai, there was thunder and lightning, clouds, storms overhead. And all of these were for the good of Israel. They were protection. They were warnings to stay off limits for their own good. And all the detailed instructions that Moses got on Mount Sinai, which you read in the first five books of the Bible, what's called the Law of Moses, all those detailed regulations, have you ever read them in Leviticus? All about how they were to build a tabernacle and all the, in, all the things that were to go in and how the precise size of everything and how it was all symmetrical and how the priests were to act and the animals were to bring. And all that ritual law, all of it was designed to say to the people, you approach God on his terms and watch out your relationship with him must be characterized by a healthy fear. And this was true for Moses and for the Israelites. Now you might think, if you'd lived in those days, this is so obvious that you would never step off limits. That the people of Israel get the point. But Yancey highlights a very interesting point. It's what he says. And yet what happened in those days almost defies belief. When Moses climbed the sacred mountain, stormy with the signs of God's presence, those people who lived through the ten plagues of Egypt, who crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, who drank water from the rock, who digested the miracle of manna in their stomachs, at that moment, these same people got bored and rebellious, jealous, and apparently forgot all about their God. By the time Moses descended from the mountain, they were dancing around like heathens around the golden cup. And the result is that we read in the story that God's anger, his judicial wrath, burns against the people of Israel. And he determines to destroy them. Only through the pleadings of Moses and the limited yet terrible judicial act of the Levite priests who go through the camp with drawn swords and slaughter 3,000 of the people is the sentence averted and the people preserved. We ignore God's holiness at our peril. 
And yet from now on, God removes himself from the centre of the camp, as it were in biblical terms, dwelling in the midst of his people, to this place outside the camp where he meets with Moses, and again the pillar of cloud comes down. No wonder the people are terrified to approach God themselves. They could do it, but they won't do it. No wonder they plead with Moses, you speak to God, we don't want anything to do with him, we're, we're afraid. No wonder that when Moses, every time they see Moses go in the tent, all the people stand up, of course they stood to worship in those days, the people stood in worship until Moses finally emerged safe and sound. And no wonder when he emerged, his face glowing with the glory of God, they couldn't even look at the reflected glory. Now, three and a half millennia on, what are we to make of this? What about today? There are some people who say, oh well, what you've got to realise is that this is the God of the Old Testament, a very primitive view of a very primitive God, and that our understanding of God has developed over the years, and we no longer think of God in those terms, because we're New Testament Christians, and the New Testament presents a different picture of God. I have to say that anyone who believes the Bible to be God's revelation, not least the New Testament and what Jesus taught and believed, cannot with any seriousness or integrity hold to such a position. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Moses. So if he's the same God, should we not approach him with a healthy fear? Another book, that by John White, now unfortunately out of print, um, called People in Prayer, from which I, I guess sublimely I borrowed the title for our series. This is what he says. Listen carefully. The God of Sinai is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is immutable. He does not mellow with the passage of time. He is the God of law. He is the God of grace. He is the God who demands nothing less than the holiness of his people. His self-appointed public relations experts have done, done as in him a blasphemous disservice in toning down the harsh outlines of his image, making him more suitable to our preference in God's. His image has changed with the times. We are worshippers of a golden calf. We need to be reminded, as were the subjects of C.S. Lewis's Narnia tales, that Aslan is not a tame lion. We cannot pray aright if we fail to recognize these things. So God is the same God, unchanging. And if we want to meet with him in prayer, we need to recognize this. But, you ask, has anything changed since Sinai? Yes, it has. Thankfully, not God, but the means by which he is provided through which we may approach him without fear of being consumed. God has given us a different way by which we may approach him. You see, the New Testament, it's called New Testament by the way, the Old Testament, the word testament means covenant or agreement. What happened to Moses and the people of Israel was under the Old Covenant, the Old Agreement. God has now made a new agreement, a new way by which we may approach him. And the New Testament makes it absolutely clear this is very different from the way in which Moses and the Israelites approached God. The particular part of the New Testament where you find this out, and you may be aware of this, but if you're starting out the Christian life, always look in the New Testament what it says about the Old Testament so you'll begin to understand more clearly then. But the New Testament, particularly one book, there's a book in the New Testament called the book of Hebrews. It's called that because it's written to Hebrews, to Jewish Christians. 
And these Christians are suffering because they've become Christians and they're tempted to go back to their old faith as it were to go back to Sinai. Alright? And the writer urges them not to do so because, because God has given them a better way of approaching him. These are some of the great verses in the New Testament. Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 21. If you want to find it, page 1211. The words will come on the screen. But try and follow what it says. Know what he says. He writes to Christians, right? Jewish Christians. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses was said, I'm trembling with fear. He says, if you're a Christian, you've not come to that. But great verses that follow, verse 22. But you, if you're a Christian, have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. And supremely, you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, a new agreement, and to his sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He says, along with all the angels in heaven, the redeemed people of God, you don't come to that fearful mountain, you come to a new place, the heavenly Jerusalem. You come to the people of God and you come because of Jesus. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he bore the wrath of God that we deserve so that we might be forgiven and receive mercy, so that we might approach God with confidence and without that cringing fear of being consumed. We come through what the book of Hebrews calls a new and better way, a new and living way through Jesus. Now, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you need to be afraid, really seriously afraid, about the prospect of meeting God. But if you've met God in Jesus, you are the most privileged person on this planet because you may approach God without fear of being consumed. However, does that mean we can then dispense with any healthy fear in approaching God? Not at all. We can come to God with confidence because of Jesus, but not with complacency or presumption. So the last verse of Hebrews 12, and I encourage you when you get home to read Hebrews 12 right through, says, but let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. That is in the New Testament. So if we want to meet with God in prayer, we must do so with a healthy faith. We must approach Him with reverence and awe. And I simply ask you this morning, do we? Do we approach God with reverence and awe? Do we recognize that He is still the American pastor and preacher Charles Swindle in his book on Moses writes out of great concern for the American church in this respect and I do not think things are any better in the church in our own nation that's what he says I'm deeply concerned about the shallowness of our spiritual walk in the American church today spiritual depth is rare in these landmark days at the turn of the millennium God is holy, exalted 
He's the only wise God, the creator, the maker, the sovereign Lord. He's the master. He tells me what to do and I have no safe option but to do it. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he had to crane his neck to a God high and lifted up. When Joshua came upon him on the banks of the Jordan, he immediately fell before his feet. When Ezekiel saw him, he found no words to describe him, groping within the limits of language to depict him in the clouds, among the shining wheels that spun in the glories of heaven. But not today. Today is our power, our understanding buddy, our ever-available bellboy. No, he is not. The Lord is our God. He does not bow to our unhurried pace, but in silence waits for us to meet his demands. And once we slow down enough to meet him, he is pleased to add incredible depth to our shallow lives. And that brings us to the second elements about meeting with God which we learned from Moses you see a healthy fear is essentially maybe saying if God's like that I want to stay away from him but it should not deter us from seeking him for there are incalculable benefits in meeting with God and this we see in the story of Moses as he leaves the presence of the Lord and the second thing we see is a shining face Exodus 34 tells us that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai having met with God and received for a second time the second Ten Commandments on tablets of stone that his brother and all the Israelites his brother Aaron and all the Israelites noticed something different about him his face was shining radiant with a glowing brightness and we're told that this was the result of meeting with God God's glory as it were this brightness was reflected in his actual features Moses was radiant and when the people saw this, rather than running up with curiosity or sending what the equivalent in those days of the X-Files was to find out what had happened to him, the people drew back. The people were fearful. They recognized something of God's holy presence in his face, a fact of which Moses himself was unaware till the people told him. And he reassures them and he calls them to come near him and he tells them what God has told him, his commands which they are to obey. And when he's finished speaking, he puts a veil over his face. The glory is veiled. But whenever we're told he enters God's presence, he removes the veil and speaks to God face to face. And every encounter with God brings a renewed radiance to his features. Until the next meeting. Now, it's a fascinating story, is it not? But again, I want you to think about what does this mean for us today? What about today? As far as its significance goes, it tells us that the principle remains the same. If you genuinely meet with God and encounter Him, it will always have a powerful and recognisable effect upon you. In the case of Moses, this affected his, his face, his features. What about us? If you spend the night in prayer as a Christian, will you come out with a glowing face? And I have to say, no, you won't. You may, but it's not guaranteed. Once again, the New Testament gives us the answer. And it tells us that what happens to the Christian in prayer is far greater and more glorious than what happened to Moses. Now this time you need to turn to the New Testament you could just turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 time is going but let's keep moving page 1159 
And look at the section beginning, page 1159, the NIV entitles, the glory, notice the words used, the glory of the new covenant, the new agreement. What he says, now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? He says, look, that old agreement that God made with Moses, that old covenant was glorious, so much so that people couldn't even look at the reflected glory in the face of Moses. And yet, glorious though it was, it failed because it simply condemned people to death because they could not keep the demands of God's law. But now he says, God has made a new covenant or agreement that is infinitely better and more glorious. So much more glorious than the old one that it outshines it like the sun outshines a light bulb. Looks like there's nothing there. Because this covenant, instead of condemning people before God, puts people right with God. And this does not depend on human effort. When you become a Christian, how am I going to change? It's not outward conformity. God comes to live within us by the ministry, he calls it, of his Holy Spirit. God comes to live within us, not by human effort. God works within us and begins to change us. And the result is a deeper and more lasting change. Now, how does this happen in practice? Well, the last verse, we don't have time to look at the whole passage again. Read it when you get home. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18 is, is a fantastic verse. Look what it says. And we who with... You wouldn't understand this unless you'd read the story in Exodus, would you? And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He says, just as Moses removed the veil when he went into the Lord's presence, so we, because of Jesus, can come into the Lord's presence without covering our faces in fear. We can come openly. We can spend time in intimate relationship with God, listening to what He wants to say to us, responding in praise and worship, just spending time being with God, living in the presence of God, a forgotten discipline in the days of the church in which we live where we're all so rushed off our feet we have no time for anything. Well we do, but for other things. And he says if you do that it will have a powerful effect upon you. Not an outward change, but an inward change. It will involve as we looked at last year in Romans 12 and the same word transformed is used there, it will involve an inner change of your thinking which will result in a change in your character. Look what it says. We are being transformed into His likeness. Whose likeness? The likeness of God. You become holy as He is holy. The likeness of Jesus Christ. The likeness of the Holy Spirit who makes you holy. And you become increasingly more like Jesus. The result of meeting with God is that we become more godly, more Christ-like, more holy. And we may, like Moses, be unaware of the effect but others will see a progressive change in us. They'll begin to take note of us like the early apostles that we have been with Jesus. 
Now this raises to me as I read it and contemplated over it and I see again that every preacher preaches to himself first of all. It raises a sobering question for me. And it is this. Are we, am I, being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory? Am I becoming more like Jesus? That's the bottom line. Has anyone noticed a difference? If not, why not? Could it be because I've spent so little time with him in his presence reminding myself of what he is like what I am really like what he asks of me what pleases him and what I should be doing if we spend more time each day watching television than we do in the presence of God is it any wonder that our lives reflect the character of what we see and hear rather than becoming more like Jesus and what he demands and asks of us. Is it any wonder our values, our character are more shaped by the world and its values than by Christ and his character and what he asks of us? Now to me this is deeply challenging. It's where the rubber hits the road. We can all talk about spiritual experience. But the reality is is that if you spend time with God will have a profound effect on your life. A much more profound effect than it had on Moses who came out glowing after meeting with God. And if that is true, should it not change our priorities? Should it not change us as we spend time with Him? Meeting with God. We need two things. A healthy fear when you come into God. Jesus, worshiping with reverence in us, but a powerful effect when he come out of his tent. People see and they say, oh, something different about you. They're changing. And they too are attracted to Christ as a result. Let's pray together. Lord, as we read your word, we're challenged by what we read. We thank you that you are the same God 